God's word for us today, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. May God bless this, his word, so that we can understand it and put it into practice. I've been in a parade only twice in my life. The first time was on purpose, and the second time was quite by accident. The first time was the centennial celebration of Rowan, Iowa, the small town where we lived the first six or seven years of my life. The centennial celebration was a big deal. It included a living history parade of all the school children of that town dressed as significant people in American history. And my brother David and I went as the Wright brothers. He as Orville and I as Wilbur, or, or maybe it was the other way around. But Dad helped us turn our wagon into an exact perfect replica of their plane that flew at Kitty Hawk. And Mom dressed us in mechanics coveralls and made pilot goggles out of full leather oilcloth for Dave and me to wear. And so we pulled our plane wagon, uh, taking turns riding and pulling. I think that Dave got to ride more than I did. All down that long parade route, which in memory seems like five miles, but in reality it had to be much shorter than that since Rowan's Main Street ran only two black-topped blocks before it ran out into gravel. My first parade. My second parade experience was more recent. One cold evening last Christmas season, a generous Nova couple invited Dee and me and some other friends to join them on a gondola ride around Naples Island down in Long Beach. Some of you have taken that gondola ride. Now, for several years, we've gone with our children and grandchildren to, to walk along the canals and see the extravagant displays of Christmas 
lights on the houses and in the front yards of those fancy houses that line that canal. And on those family outings, we would see boats full of people motoring along the canal, seeing the Christmas lights. But this time, we were in one of those boats, and it was fun. And it was even more fun when our gondolier steered our gondola right into the middle of the Naples annual Christmas boat parade. (laughs) And all at once, we found ourselves floating down the canal as if we were celebrities, under the bridges and between the sidewalks that were lined with thousands, if not hundreds, of uh, spectators. And some in our boat were mortified, as I recall, but uh, I thought it was kind of fun, and I tried to think of clever things to shout to the parade spectators, and the best I could come up with was, look at us, we're celebrities! (laughs) As if I had to make some excuse for our presence in that nautical procession. It was a fun time floating along, as if we belonged in that parade. Have you ever been in a parade? If I understand what the Apostle Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians, all of God's people are in a parade. And not merely as spectators on the curb, but participants who move along that parade route. The word that Paul uses in verse 14 of chapter 2 here is triumph. And it refers to the Roman custom of victory processions held in honor of a victorious general. A Roman triumph was a big deal. It followed a very well-established protocol. Not just any general was given a triumph. The general had to have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field with his army. The war had to be completely over, the conquered territory completely pacified and occupied, and the victorious soldiers had to have been brought home. At least 5,000 of the enemy had to have fallen in a single battle. And in a triumph, the procession of the Roman general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital in a specific order. First there came the government officials and the senators of Rome. And next came the trumpeters heralding with their trumpets the coming victorious general. And then there followed the spoils of war, the booty, the captured treasure that was carried by marchers in that parade or pulled along in wagons. For example, when Titus conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, the sacred furnishings and the holy objects of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem were carted away as war prizes. And when a triumph was held for Titus, the seven-branched candlestick, the menorah, and the golden table of the showbread and the golden trumpets from the temple were displayed in that triumphal procession as they marched along. And when Dee and I visited Rome last May, we stood under the arch of Titus, and we saw in sculptured relief there on that arch the scenes of Titus's triumphal procession, including the menorah 
that was paraded through the streets of Rome. So the booty, the war prizes were paraded. And after that came the marchers who carried pictures of the conquered land and models of the cities and buildings and ships that had been destroyed in battle. And then there came a white bull that was being led along to be sacrificed at the end of the parade at Capitol Hill. And following that bull came the conquered people, the leaders and rulers and nobles and princes and kings that had been overthrown. And they walked along in chains and were soon to be thrown into prison and then executed or sold into slavery. And hard on the heels of the captives marched the executioners who were ready and armed to carry out the sentences imposed on the captives. And then there was the company of the musicians and priests. As they marched along, they played and sang songs of triumph. And the priests were swinging censers, smoking pots of sweet-smelling incense. And then came the general himself, riding in a chariot pulled by four horses, and dressed in the purple robes of royalty, if not deity, with golden palm leaves embroidered on them, and carrying the scepter with the Roman eagle at its top. And a slave stood in the chariot behind the victorious general, holding the heavy golden crown of Jupiter over the general's head for the entire parade route. And after the general's chariot came his family. And then finally in that parade, the victorious army, wearing their medals and decorations and shouting victory or triumph. Well, that's the picture that Paul's word here is meant to call to mind. This extravagant parade that moves along the streets with cheering crowds lining those streets celebrating a colossal triumph. It was a tremendous day that might happen only once in a person's lifetime. And Paul pictures the conquering Christ that way, moving through the world. And Paul pictures himself and his co-workers, and by extension, all of us who would eventually come to know and love and follow Christ in that picture of the parade, marching in that victory celebration. Now, the King James Version translated this verse 14 this way. Thanks be to God who leads us in triumph. Later versions have who causes us to triumph. And the emphasis there is on the victory, on the triumph. But the New International Version that most of you have in front of you this morning, the 1984 edition, has who always leads us in triumphal procession. So it introduces this idea of parade or procession. But this doesn't mean what you probably think it means. You may have noticed that the revised NIV that I read earlier, and that is at the top of the order of service in the folder today, says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives, as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. 
Now, most people would prefer the earlier translation. You, no doubt, have heard sermons or lessons taught from that version. And it's been thought of as an encouraging word. Uh, thank God who always leads us to victory. God who always leads us in triumph. Uh, we, no matter what our troubles, share in God's victory. We march in Christ's victory parade as his family and his soldiers. We celebrate that he is victorious and we are victorious with him. And some preachers and teachers have even found a place for us in the chariot of Jesus, beneath the victor's crown with Jesus. And that is an encouraging picture, an uplifting lesson for people like us who often forget that we are on the winning side. The only thing wrong with that lesson is that it's not what the scriptures teach. Many a good sermon, many a good lesson has been ruined by the truth. The New International Version clarifies it, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Paul is saying that his place in the parade is not as a member of the conquering general's family or even as one of the victorious soldiers. And it certainly is not as riding with Jesus in his chariot. Paul sees himself as one of the captives, led in chains along the parade route, subjected to the general under the sentence of death. And here's how that interpretation fits with what was happening between Paul and the Corinthians those days. There were those among the Corinthians who criticized Paul and questioned his authority and sought to discredit him as a messenger of Christ. And they pointed to Paul's obvious weaknesses. He was not a great speaker. He was physically weak and suffered from various ailments. His was not a commanding presence. In Paul's own words, he came to them in weakness and in fear with much trembling. He did not, as they expected their teachers to do, lord it over them. He did not teach with persuasive, eloquent words of wisdom. And Paul is here accounting for his way of life and his manner of teaching and leading by giving them this picture of himself as one who has been subdued and conquered by God and who now marches to God's beat, who is dead to all purposes but God's purposes for him, who is completely at the disposal of God who has taken him captive. Do you see the difference? Our place in God's parade is different from what we may have been led to believe. Oh, it's true. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And there is victory in Jesus. Don't want to take the favorite song from some of you. There is victory in Jesus. But that's not the lesson of this text. The picture that Paul paints here puts us in the parade 
as those who are led as captives, whose lives are already forfeited, no longer our own, but intended to serve the purposes of the one who has conquered us. We are captives marching in that procession. We count ourselves dead to ourselves and alive only to what God wants to accomplish through us. The parade is headed to death. Through suffering, to future sacrifice, for us, the one-time enemies of God, who have been subdued and now serve him in abject submission, captured slaves walking along in chains toward their death. We no longer belong to ourselves, but to God, the great victor, and we serve him in suffering and weakness and even death. So the first picture here is of us as captives in God's triumphal procession. A second picture I've labeled aroma or stench. Another picture is here in the same verse. And it's the idea of aroma or smell or fragrance. I think that this too is a reference to that victory parade, though not not every preacher would agree with me. Paul wrote, God leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings life, to the other an aroma, excuse me, an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And here the metaphor gets kind of jumbled up, or at least it overlaps and it needs to be sorted out. The priests in that triumphal procession in Rome would swing censers, pots or chains on ropes or chains or, or cords, and the pot would contain smoking, burning incense. And as the censers were swung all along that parade route, the strong, sweet smell of the incense would be spread among and over that whole crowd of people watching. And the spread of the knowledge of Christ throughout the world through the ministry of God's servants is likened to the spread of that aroma. Paul is saying that as we walk through life, the knowledge of Christ is spread to people around us. They know something of Jesus just as spectators at that triumphal parade would smell the burning incense and sense what was going on. And Paul says that aroma is first of all pleasing to God. He is pleased when knowledge of his son Jesus and his sacrifice for us and our sins is dispersed into the world. But that aroma is not pleasing to everybody. To some it has the stench of death and to others the very aroma of life just like the incense at the Roman parade. You see, to the victors, it smelled good. It was perfume. But to the conquered, it smelled bad. It stunk. 
you know how strong smell memory is. A certain aroma can take you back to a place or a time or an experience long ago and far away. There is a certain musty church basement fellowship hall smell that I have remembered from my childhood and I encounter it on occasion and I'm instantly transported back to some long-forgotten potluck supper at the First Congregational Church in Rowan, Iowa. Smells leave an emotional imprint on our minds. To those who marched as the winners, the smell of incense would from now on and forever take them back to the great day of celebrating that huge victory. But to those who marched as the captured and the conquered, that smell, for as long as they lived, would remind them of their certain death. And so it is with the knowledge of Christ. Some people smell it on us, and to them it smells like death. They perceive it, but they don't like it. They don't receive it as the truth. They are people who don't believe. They see no life. They smell no hope. They experience no joy. The gospel, the good news that God in Christ came into the world to die to save sinners like us is not good news to them. It's just bad news. And they themselves are on the way to death. They are perishing. And other people around smell the same thing on us. And rather than the stench of death, it is to them the fragrance of life. The knowledge of Christ is spread to them and they smell it and like it and receive it and embrace it. To them it brings life. In the words of the Apostle John, to all who receive him, who believe on his name, he gives the power, the right to become children of God. So you see the same aroma, but two different perceptions and, if you will, receptions of it. It either reeks of death to people or it is the very perfume of life. The aroma, the knowledge of Christ divides the world into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And in the next few verses, Paul switches to a third picture, uses a third metaphor, and we'll look at that in some detail next Sunday, but I want you to just notice it today. It was customary for teachers to carry credentials with them when they went from place to place with a teaching. And this would be much like those letters of reference that job seekers have sent on, be, on their behalf to prospective employers. I've written a lot of those letters of reference myself. Letters of recommendation certifying that you are who you say you are in the job interview. Apparently, Paul did not present such a letter when he first came to the Corinthians, and he was being criticized for not having written this letter or have this letter written for him, his written credential. 
And his response to that criticism was simple. He said to the Corinthians, you yourselves are my letter. I don't need a letter. You are my letter. You want proof that I am the messenger of God's word to you? Just look at yourselves. You who were once lost are now found. You who were once alienated from God have now been brought close to him into his family. You who formerly served only yourselves and were slaves to sin now have been redeemed and made to be the servants of God. That's what you were, Paul is saying. Now look at yourselves. You are our letter, our letter of recommendation, a letter that is written on your heart and on my heart. And it's there to be known and read by everyone. A letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. So what does this all mean for us? Three things, I think. First, we are refocused by this scripture truth on God's action in Christ for us. By his death and endless life, a victory has been won for us. There's a celebration going on, a triumphal procession in which we march, honoring Christ the victor. And second, we are experiencing that parade both in triumph and in suffering. There is reason to be glad in this parade. Christ has conquered. But as we are glad and give thanks, we also realize our place in that parade. Christ has captured us. He has taken us captive. We are his slaves. We are no longer to serve our own purposes, but to serve his. We belong to him. He owns us. We are at his disposal. We live to honor him. And third, as we live these lives that often include sacrifice and suffering, we are giving off the aroma of Christ. This world-dividing aroma. To some, it is the stench of death, but to others, the fragrance of life. That's our place in the parade, our role in the mission of God. Amen.